Good morning, KCC. This is my church family. It is good to see you here, and uh, I'm glad to be with you. Before we continue on, we're going to say a prayer. Uh, we typically pray for another church here in this area and in this town. Uh, today, uh, we're, we're going to pray for a hurting church. Uh, the Church of Christ in Junction uh, has been met with disaster uh, these past few weeks. Uh, their, their preacher uh, is Bryce Stewart, and uh, he's been suffering through cancer. And that has been a difficult thing. But then uh, last week, their son, uh, I believe he's 15 years old, Zane, uh, had a uh, brain bleed and died and uh, in the midst of all of that. And so that is another uh, young man uh, who was a follower of Christ who left this world too soon, and they are shattered, uh, but they are holding on tight to Christ. And uh, that church needs our prayers this morning. They had a memorial service yesterday for him, and many people, some of you, went to bear witness to that. Uh, to be the people that stand there when others go through the hardest times of their life, that is an important thing in the body of Christ, that we are there to stand with one another when they go through difficult times and when they go through good times. And so it is important to have uh, people around. So we bear witness today to the hurt that uh, one of our sister churches is going through, and we're going to lift them up before our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning with uh, a room full of... Um, Joy and hurt and mourning and celebration and anxiety and fear and excitement and the whole range. Um, in a room this size, Lord, we know that uh, you can be all kinds of different emotions and things going on. We know there are people who have walked in here today um, that have had losses this week, that have lost good friends, lost people that they know, uh, people that they were connected to. And so, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be present to give comfort. We are thankful that he's called the Comforter uh, and that uh, he can be here in this place to help mend our hearts back together. Lord, we know that there are also people who come in here today who are rejoicing, uh, new grandchildren, new children, new great-grandchildren, uh, new jobs, new opportunities. And so, Lord, we are grateful that we get to bring our joys and uh, our victories too. More than anything, Lord, our worship is bringing everything that we are and everything that we have and laying it at your feet. And so we ask you to be present in a heavy way here this morning, that your Holy Spirit uh, would, would bring comfort to those that are hurting, that would rejoice with those that are rejoicing. But more than anything, Lord, we want to celebrate the fact that you are who you are, that you're a loving God. You do not abandon us. Your mercies are new every morning, and your love does not fail. And so, uh, Lord, we especially ask that you be with the Junction Church of Christ. For the stewards, for their loss, we know, Lord, that they are leaning into you. They are grabbing hard onto their Heavenly Father as their heart breaks with the loss of their son. And God, we just ask that you be present with them, that you comfort them in the way that only you can. We're thankful for Zane's faith and that he belongs to you and that he's not suffering, but that his family is so hurt. So, Lord, we ask you to mend that family back together in only the way that you can. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to our lesson today. Uh, we've been in John. If you haven't been with us before, we're in John. And I hope if you are here and you have uh, your notebook, this is the book of John that we have. It's a place for notes. Hey, we're going to be able to move to another page today, so you're going to have more room for notes, hopefully, uh, and be able to do that. We have... Uh, been looking at the stories that John, an old, old man who was a follower of Jesus, sat down and decided to write. 
And uh, we want you to remember that this is not just a collection of stories. This was not John just sitting down and going, hey, I just want to give you some examples of some things that happened. There's a purpose in this. There's a reason that he selected the stories that he did. There's a reason that he's written them the way that he has. There's something in this for us. And it has been such a joy for me, I know, to dig into this and to look at what uh, the Holy Spirit did when he guided uh, the apostle John to write these things down. Uh, don't forget, and we've mentioned this before, but if you flip over to John 20, verses 30 and 31, this is a good reminder for us. Because John says uh, late in the book, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So there's purpose to this. It's not just a history lesson. This is a lesson about us being changed, giving our, our lives to Christ and having life in his name. So what he's saying there is he goes, I want you to know there's a lot of other things that I saw. There's a lot of stories of healing. There's a lot of stories of miracles. There's a lot of stories of interactions. I'm not writing them all down, but I'm writing some of them down. And there's a reason that I'm writing down the ones that I am. I want you to get something from this. And one of the things that I've been able to find throughout the book of John is this word, these two words, spirit and truth, seems to be a huge part of what he's doing. He's trying to get us to look beyond just the things that are physical and to see that God is moving in the spirit in ways to, to heal your spirit, to change us in our spirit, to change us at our core of who we really are. I'm not talking about something mystical here. I'm talking about what really motivates us and makes us who we are. What really needs to be healed is our spirit. And then there's this truth. And this ultimate truth is about who God is and what God does. And these things don't change. They're always there and they're eternal. So this spirit and truth is something that we're going to be using a lot as we look at this. It's kind of a lens through which uh, we can look at what John did. So our reading today is going to be from John 5, verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man that said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. 
And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I'm working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The word of the Lord. This is a powerful story, and there's so much in this when we start putting the lens of spirit and truth on this. I don't want us to miss it. Because there's a reason that John put this story in here. This is not just about a healing of a paralytic. There is more to it. There is more that is going on here. A couple of things I want to mention to you uh, that have to do with a little context and a little background. One is just recently they've uncovered this area where it talks about near the sheep gate. There was this area with the five colonnades. and that. They have uncovered that recently, and it's exactly where the Bible says that it was. It's exactly like it says. So it's been really neat that just recently archaeologists have been able to find that and that it's right there. Just another way for us to be able to go, man, this is eyewitness testimony. Uh, in addition to that, if you look at your, uh, your book there, if you would uh, turn to verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 4. You see it? It's not there. There is no verse 4. Have you noticed that? It goes from 3 to 5. There's no verse 4. Let me tell you a little bit about that. We're not going to spend a long time on it, uh, but it's important that we take a look at it because sometimes questions come up about this, and in particular about why they were there gathered around this pool. Verse 4 that was included in sometimes in some translations and is being removed, it seems, more and more, uh, is, is this. And they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. And the first one in the pool, after each such disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease they had. Have you heard that before? It's something that maybe you read before. That used to be included in a lot of the translations. They're starting to pull it out more and more. Because what they're finding is older and older transcripts and going the most reliable and the oldest transcripts of what John wrote, that's not in there. That seems to have been added a little bit later. And it may have been as an explanation to say there's a legend there's a myth that was believed that if you were to go down into there, maybe there was some sort of angel that would do this, that would stir this up. But I want you to understand more than anything, that doesn't cause us to cause more into question the Scripture. It actually should give us confidence in that because what we're doing is finding more and more transcripts of what was written with John and the earliest ones and the ones that are most reliable that they go, we know where these came from, we know when they were written. This doesn't include that part. And the reason is because they don't want you to think that that is actual Scripture of this is what God was doing. God was not causing water to stir through an angel, and then allowing a race to happen to get down into the water and be healed. There was legend and myth in some way, it appears, that led them to this place. But that's not what's going on. If you notice throughout Scripture, it's rare that the Lord would make a contest to see who gets to be healed, and especially one that has to do with how fast you can run. So uh, I'd like to just say the reason that that's not in there is because they felt like putting it in there the way that it was made it look like this is actually what God's doing. And they're going, that's really not what God was doing. But it seems that there was a myth or a legend, and that's why people gathered around there, okay? There's more research on that. If you'd like to go do it, there's a ton online. You can go read about what happened to verse 4 in John chapter 5. Uh, welcome you to do that if you'd like to. But let's get to the story. Here's what's really going on. You have this pool, and you have this multitude of people, as it says. And a multitude means a lot, okay? We're talking more than three. 
We're talking probably more than 10. We may be talking over 100. People gathered around this pool, and it's the blind, and it's the paralyzed, and it's the deaf, and it's people that are suffering in all these different ways. And they all gathered together, and they were at this place. And when they're at this place, what they're doing is they're looking for healing, and they're looking for comfort, and they're looking for something to relieve their suffering in some way. And this is the place that they begin to gather. And so that's where they were. That's where they had gathered together, looking for hope in really a place that wasn't going to have it in that way. That pool was not going to save anybody, but they had gathered there in this place. Maybe they found community there. Maybe they learned to rely on one another. Maybe they just knew that this was a place, if somebody was looking for me, they could come because this is where I would be. Was it easy for them to get there? If you were blind, you had to have help. If you were paralyzed, you had to have help. If you were lame, you had to have help. But they gathered in this place. This was a place that they wanted hope, and it probably wasn't going to find them there. But they had nowhere else to turn. And in the midst of this, Jesus walks in, and here are all the people that are hurting, and he goes to this one particular man. And he comes up to him, and he asks him whether he wants to be healed. And, you know, this is the part where we don't really have that much context, and you don't have inflection. And I don't know, I always kind of looked at this as kind of a mean question, uh, when I picture Jesus saying it, is to go, hey, do you even want to be healed? And I don't think that's accurate. Uh, you know, I've kind of come to feel a little bit more like maybe Jesus sidled up to him and goes, so you want to be healed? You're looking in the wrong place. I'm the guy. More of that sort of approach. Because he came to him and he asked him that. So you want to be healed? You want to be healed? And I can picture Jesus, he knows what's about to happen. He's got to have this knowing grin. Things are about to change for you, buddy, because I'm about to do something you're not even thinking about. Now, the interesting part of this is his conversation immediately goes to, I don't have any help. It wasn't, yes, I want to be healed. It wasn't, no, that I don't want to be healed. And it, what it actually was was, I don't have help. For me to get where I need to go to be made whole, to be healed, to be put back together, I have to have someone help me. I need someone to intercede for me, to get me where I need to go. I cannot do it on my own. Now, I've thought about that and go, that's a strange answer to a question because it was a yes or no question. Do you want to be healed? But it's the Sabbath. And you need to know that's important because here's the deal. On the Sabbath, the laws and the rules would have been that if somebody wanted to grab the man and help him down into the pool, they would have been breaking the Sabbath. That would have been against the rules. So I wonder if the reason that he answered was not just, I've been here for a long time and nobody's ever helped me. I wonder if it's partly going today, on this day, I know nobody's going to help me. When it comes time, when I need relief, when I need healing, when I need a miracle... No one will help me on this day. And you start thinking about the, the irony of this situation. For a man to go on this holy day, on this day when we remember God, I am without hope. There will be no one to get me where I need to go because it would be unlawful for them to do that. This day that's so holy, that's set aside for God, I'm not going to get any hurt. So I'm still here and I'm still hurt, and I'm still without help, and I'm starting to be without hope. And that's the one Jesus comes to. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason that he came. 
and he came to find that man, the man who desperately needed some help. So he heals him. He just says, get up. Just get up and take your mat and go. So he gets up. It's a miracle. He gets up, literally a miracle, not the way we throw the word around, and he grabs his mat and he starts to leave. And immediately you have some Jewish leaders that go, hey, 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 hey. What are you doing carrying your mat on the Sabbath? You know that's against the rules, and you're not supposed to do this. His answer was, the guy who healed me that took my paralyzed legs and paralyzed body and turned me into someone who could walk like that told me to pick up my mat and carry it. So that's what I'm doing. And the conversation does not go to where it should who healed you? Who caused you to get up and walk? Who relieved your suffering? Who changed you? Who did this miracle? Who took what was a hopeless situation and changed you and gave you tremendous hope? Who rescued you? Who is it? Not the question at all. Instead, it was, who broke the rules? Point him out to us. Who messed up? Somebody here messed up when they told you to pick up their mat. Somebody broke the rules. Somebody's tearing the system down, and we want to know who it is. Man, you want to talk about burying the headline. Good grief. You're ignoring what happened with someone who was suffering to make sure that you can find out who's messing with our system. Who did things wrong? It's not just a mistake they made, but somebody is messing with our system, and we need to know who it is. It's a miracle that happened. And meanwhile, what they're doing is they're looking at their rules and trying to figure out who broke them. What causes people to do that? What would cause somebody to go, I'm more interested in our system and how you broke it down and the rules that we have than I am in the fact that you were paralyzed and now that you're walking? Who looks at a rescued person and then turns to them and goes, this is all wrong. This is not the way that this is supposed to happen. And the fact is, when we start looking at that, I'm afraid it's a little more common with us than we'd like to admit. People that can get more focused on the rules than on the saving. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie that came out recently, Jesus Revolution. You know, there's this movie that came out, and it's talking about this preacher who decided what he was going to do is he was going to start inviting the hippie movement into his church. And he started doing that. And what was amazing is people that had been involved in free love and in doing drugs and all these things are coming to Christ. And they're laying all these things down, and they're being rescued in their lives, and they're being redeemed, and they're being changed. And one of the scenes that you see out of that is a church person going to the pastor and saying, these people, they smell and they're ruining our shag carpet. Right? Shag carpet tells you about when this was. <laughs> this was back in the little earlier time there. What could cause somebody to look past the miracle of people being redeemed and go, you're messing up my church. You're messing up the system. What would cause us to do that? Again, it happens a little more often than we'd like to say. I don't know if you've ever heard of John Wimber. Any of y'all know who John Wimber is? John Wimber, John Wimber uh, was part of a group called the Paramours that eventually became the Righteous Brothers. 
and he was a, a he was a member of that band, and then he became their manager, and and he was so he was a performer and a singer in Las Vegas. And somebody invited him to church, and he has these amazing videos, you can get them online, of his experience when he came to church. One of the things that John talks about is he had never been in a church before. He's been performing in Vegas. He's a singer, and he comes in, and he sits down at the front, and the first thing he does is light a cigarette and go, where's the ashtrays? Why aren't there any ashtrays in here? And his first reaction was to look and go, this is not a very good show. Just so you know, I could really do something if you were to give me some lights and a few more dancing people because this is not that great a show. This is where he's coming from, right? In other words, this is blank slate, a guy coming in. But what happens is he hears the gospel, hears the good news about Christ and how much he's loved, and he gives his life to Christ. And then he's on fire. And so what he does is he goes and gathers all his friends. Well, all of his friends work on the strip in Vegas. We have people that are gamblers. We have people that are prostitutes. We have people that are exotic dancers. We have people that sell drugs. We have musicians that take drugs. And he starts bringing them in by the dozen into his church. And they start coming into this place and they start hearing about Christ. And they start being saved. There's miracles happening. People who have been completely lost are now being redeemed. And then he tells the story of a lady at his church that came to the back after it was over. They had just baptized several people People who didn't know anything about Christ. And she came to the back, and she's teary, and she's got gritted teeth, and she goes, you have ruined my church. Bring in these people here. And I so love John's reaction because he was tender. And he said, I just hugged her and cried with her. And he goes, I know. I'm so sorry. But I thought that maybe if I went out and caught them, we could all clean them together. Right? What a great phrase. How do we miss the miracle of what Christ is doing and sometimes instead focus on whether or not it's messing up our system? It's messing up the way that we do things. This is not something that we want. How can this happen when people are being redeemed? Let me tell you a little bit about Sabbath background because that's a lot of this. We've talked a little bit about this before, but I want to remind you, you know, the Sabbath began in the first Uh, talk of it is right after God had created. Remember the seventh day, he kept saying he would create on the first day, and it's good, and the second day, and it's good, and the third day, it's good, and the fourth day, it's good, it's good. And then he gets to the seventh day, and it says, and God rested. And you need to know, God didn't rest because God was tired. It's not that kind of rest. What God did was to go, I have made this exactly the way that it's supposed to be. I can rest in my work. I don't want to add anything. I don't want to take away anything. This is the way it's supposed to be. And so God stopped, and he rested and went, no more. This is the way it's supposed to be. Now, it got messed up, and it wasn't the way that it was supposed to be after that. And then the next time we start seeing him talking about the Sabbath is when he gave the Sabbath. It wasn't him doing it. He gave it to his people. He redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, and he pulled them out where they had been slaves for generations and generations and generations for 400 years. And he pulled them out of there, and he said, I'm going to redeem you from this place. And he led them out, and he led them to the mountain. And when he got there, he said, listen, this is one of the things I want you to do. I want you to learn to rest. you got a slave mentality all about what you produce and what you can do. And your worth has been about what you can do for others and how much you can produce and how many bricks you can make. And I want you to rest. I want you to take this day, and it's not just rest, but I want you to remember, it was me who saved you. I brought you out 
of Egypt with my mighty hand. Because it took several miracles. And I brought you out and I took you to this place. And I want you to learn to rest in what I did. I did this, you rest. This is who you are. You used to be enslaved and now you're free people. Now you're my people. And I'm going to set you up in this place. And it's this, it's this Eden coming back in. See, I've changed things again. I've taken you back to where you're supposed to be. I redeemed you from slavery. I've made you my people again. Now this is the way it's going to work, and you're going to trust me, and I'm going to provide for you like I did in the garden. I'm going to make manna fall from the sky, and I'm going to provide quail, and I'm going to fight your battles for you, and I'm going to do this for you. And then I want you to learn to rest. I want you to do it. And when you rest, it's holy. It's set apart. You remember what I did. This is about what I did. And this is about you remembering what I did in you. I changed you. I changed your past, your future, and your identity in every way. That's what the Sabbath was. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. When the Lord came and told them and said, hey, on the seventh day, I want you to rest. I want you to take the Sabbath. As people, this is what we do. They immediately start going, okay, I'm not supposed to work. So what does it mean to not really work? And so they started trying to figure that out. What does that mean? And God gives some instruction, but you need to know after the time of Exodus and to the time to Jesus, what we had is a rabbinical structure that came up. We have rabbis, and they would start talking, and they're trying to figure out what this looks like so that by the time they got to Jesus, there were all of these rules about what it means to rest. And you need to know it was a big deal because it's number four on the big list of commandments, right? Is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy and set it apart for God. But here's what we did, God's people. They made 39 sections of prohibition. 39 sections of things. These are not 39 different rules. These are 39 sections of rules about what are prohibited. Okay? There's everything from rules including how you're supposed to prepare bread, how you can make and you can wear clothes, how you can write, what you can write, what you can use to write, how much you can write. It's about basic household chores. It's what type of knots could be tied and what type of knots could not be tied. There's rules like you can tie a knot if it can be undone with one hand and not with two hands. And there was the idea of even a discussion of if you were to throw something in the air, is it okay for you to catch it? And one of the things that they came to is they go, it's okay to throw it in this hand as long as you catch it in the other hand. And so we're starting to make all of these rules around what it means to not work. As a matter of fact, one thing that was put in there is there's a Sabbath day's journey. We could say this is how far you could go because one of the things is you can't travel. You go, okay, what's travel? They say, well, well about 3,000 feet. You can't go more than 3,000 feet. That's about what it was, a Sabbath day's journey. But then they said, well, does that mean that from your front door or does that mean from where you are? And they say, well, it's from your front door. And they go, well, what if I'm not on my front door on Sabbath? And they said, well, if you've gone and you've set up a tent somewhere else and you actually had a meal there, then that can be your front door. And then you can go from 3,000 feet from there. And so what happened was they started parsing this and they started figuring out all these rules. And there's rule after rule after rule. And a lot of it also had to do with how much aid you could render to somebody who's hurting. Right? If you were, got hurt and are dying, it's okay for me to come and help you and get you to help. If you're not dying, I can't. I can't get you and I can't take you somewhere. Back to the pool. You got a paralytic man. Okay? To get him up and to try and help him so that he can be healed from his paralysis, no matter how ridiculous that may sound in the pool, would have broken the rule. Because he's not dying. You see? So with that, we have all of these rules about how you can help somebody. There's all these rules about resting. 
then you start thinking, did Jesus technically break the rule when he told him to get up and walk and take your mat? I don't know. All he did was say the words. He didn't take him somewhere. But there's so many rules and regulations to where it finally has you asking, how much work does it take to rest correctly? <laughs> right? That's really what this became. As we worked and we study and we labor and we argue and we fuss and we fight about what it means to rest. Well, I, I think we've missed the point. Something got lost in this, right? And this is a common complaint against Jesus. You need to know him keeping the Sabbath wrong was something that they brought up a lot with him. If you flip over to John 9, verses 16, one of the things that you'll see is this phrase where it says, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. Why? He doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And so there was a division among them. So one of the things that happened with Jesus is when he didn't keep the Sabbath the way they want to, it was actually rules to go, he's not from God. We know he's not from God. Now you need to know, this was right after he gave sight to a blind man. And the argument became, again, here was a man who couldn't see, now he can see, and you know, he can't be from God. He did it wrong. He's not following the system, see? We put all these things in place. It doesn't matter the suffering that he's relieved. It doesn't matter that he changed this person's life. It doesn't matter this was a miracle. You broke the rules, man. And you don't do that. Mark 2, 27, Jesus finally says to him when they get into arguing about the Sabbath, he said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That part wasn't up there. I need to make sure you see that. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. And what he's trying to do is to go, okay, you, you guys have lost the point in this. I, my Father gave you this. He gave you the Sabbath to, so that you would be able to rest. And instead, it has come to rule over you and it's become your master. Your father gave it to you right after setting you free from slavery, and you have enslaved yourself with your legalism with it. There's so much talk about what you must do and what you shouldn't do and what others do and what others don't do. And don't forget what you had was the Jews there. I don't know how they got to, to this uh, pool in Solomon's colonnade at this time. I don't know if they walked more than a Sabbath day's journey or if it was within that, but they put upon themselves to go, I'm going to be a watchdog. That should be against the Sabbath, but they weren't. Because they go, I'm going to call people out on this. And you know that the Heavenly Father is going, where's the part about me? You're doing a whole lot of look what I'm doing and look who I'm keeping the rules and I'm making sure that you keep the rules and I'm watching to make sure you keep the rules and I'm keeping the rules better than you are, but you're keeping the rules better than she are. Where's, where's God in this? Where's the set it apart for me and make it holy? In Genesis, that's what the Lord did is he rested and he set apart that day and he consecrated and he made it holy. And then he gave it to them after slavery and he said, I want you to set apart and I want you to make it holy. And this is about what I have done. In Genesis, it was about the creation that God had done. In Exodus, when he brought them out of slavery, it is about what he has done. And I can imagine the Lord going, you have forgotten about me in this completely. This has nothing to do with me. This has a lot to do with you has a lot to do with how you see the people around you. And how in the world did you turn this into something that makes rules where I can't redeem people? 
can only imagine the frustration with Jesus. How did this get turned into this idea that I, if I was Jesus, can't set people free? Boy, we have lost our way on that one. And it really brings up, what's true rest? Right? That was their question, is what does it mean to rest? What does it mean to not work? And that's the interesting thing about this, because to find out what it means to truly rest, Jesus kind of changes this a little bit. And we're going to go back to this. We're going to put our spirit and truth lens on this and go, what does it mean to actually have rest? And we need to know, first of all, like all of the things we're going to be talking about, it is beyond the flesh. That's what makes it spirit. And it is eternally true. And that's what makes it truth. You see, Sabbath is this physical act with a spiritual purpose. That's the whole point. He goes, I'm going to ask you to do something physical, but for the sake of your spirit and to change you spiritually. I'm trying to change you through this act. But think about that. That's nearly everything that we do, isn't it? Is is when his command is to go, hey, y'all come gather here together. Well, that's a spiritual, I mean, that's a physical act, but it's for our spirit. And he goes, I'm going to ask you to sing praises to God. Well, that's a physical act. But it's about your spirit. It's about healing your spirit. I'm going to tell you to pray. And that's a physical act. But this is about healing your spirit. It's about you communing with the Lord through your spirit. It's these things that we do physically, but we realize the purpose of them is to change our soul and to change us who we are. The Sabbath is about more than doing nothing. Lots of people do nothing. That's not what this is. This is for us to focus on the finished work of God. That's what the Sabbath is for. It's going, you take a minute and stop, and you focus on what I did. And if what we do is we take something like that and we stop and we focus on what we're doing, we've missed the point. We've taken and we've focused on the part that is physical and not the part that heals our soul. The fact is, you can rest and not keep the Sabbath holy at all. And at the same time, you can have to take somebody and get them some help down in San Antonio at the hospital and still remember the great work that God's done in your heart. In other words, this is a spiritual thing. And if we're just going to focus on the physical part, we're going to miss this. But that's not what legalism does. Legalism is a focus on the physical act so much that we negate the spiritual work that God has done. And that's where they were. We are so focused on whether or not you did this right, on whether or not he's picking up his mat, on whether or not you healed on the Sabbath, that we forgot that God's work and what he does is he redeems people. He sets people free from suffering. He changes them. And how dare us put some physical constraint around the work of God and what he's doing. That's why it's so neat when Jesus does come to him and they ask him about it. He goes, you need to know something. My father is at work. Interesting, right? Because after the sixth day, he rested. And he goes, yeah, but things got messed up. So our God went back to work. He went to work redeeming people out of Egypt. He went back to setting people free. He went back to setting the slave free and and relieving suffering and bringing people to him, redeeming them. He's at work, so I'm at work. This is what I do. I relieve suffering. I relieve pain. I set people free. And if we get to the spot where we're overlooking what God has done instead, stressing what we did, then we have missed the point of this. Because really what they started doing is saying, my value is in how well I keep the Sabbath. If I can keep the Sabbath right, 
then I'm doing good. You go, boy, have we missed the point. This is about what God's done. This is not about what you do. We're trying to take our salvation back from God and work it out ourselves and spin and toil and twist and wonder why we never get any rest. He said, I gave you this day. It's a day to set aside to celebrate how I set you free, how I eased your suffering, how I healed your souls, and now you're using it to stop me from doing that exact thing for this paralytic man. You're preventing me from healing this man with your rules, and now it's re-enslaved you. You've walked back into the slavery that I set you free from. Amazing, isn't it? You ever heard that phrase, there's uh, no rest for the wicked? There's no rest for the wicked. That, that comes from Isaiah 48, or if you know the band, Cage the Elephant. It's uh, also a song there. I don't know if you know that. Right? There's no rest for the wicked. Well, I want to tell you, there's no rest for the legalist either. There's just not. You won't ever find it. It won't be there. And the reason is because what you're doing is you're going, if I can get it right, I can rest. And God's going, I already did it right, so you should rest. You'll never be able to get to the spot where you'll be able to rest in what you do. There's no true rest in the physical, fleshly keeping of God's commands. You can't come to church enough. You can't sing enough. You can't pray enough to make sure that you have rest. There's no rest in just obedience. That's one of the things that Jesus is arguing with them around the pool at. You're putting obedience over spiritual change, you're going to miss the point, and there's no rest for your soul. You get the idea that what God says about me is only true when I get Sabbath correct, or when we do communion right, or when we sing right, or when we worship right. Then I get rest. You go, oh, brother, sister, I got to tell you, you're never going to find rest there. That's all based on what you do. Rest comes from believing and trusting that what God says about you is true. And then out of that comes obedience. That's where it comes from. Your obedience comes out of your rest and not out of your straining and toiling and suffering. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. I tell you, write a note, Hebrews 4. Go read Hebrews 4. As the Hebrew writer talks about how the Sabbath works for us, and what it means. Go read that. Here's Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's us. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. You see, the paralytic man was incapable of reaching where he needed to go. There was no way for him to get where he needed to go to the place of healing. He could not do it there was no one to help him, and he's looking in the wrong spot. Meanwhile, you have the Jewish leaders in the same place. They cannot get where they need to go to be healed, and they're looking in the wrong spot. They're looking at their own actions and the way that they keep that instead of everybody looking to Christ because here's the deal. He came to go, I'm going to take this paralytic man who's without hope and who doesn't have anybody to lead him to healing, and I'm going to be the healing that I lead him to. And he wants the same thing for the Jewish leaders. I want to take you and heal you too. I want to heal you from your spinning and toiling and trying to get everything right to where you can point to what you're doing and try and find rest because you won't find rest there. You will only find rest in me. You notice Jesus doesn't condemn the Sabbath in any way. And a lot of us, we need it. We need rest. 
We don't need to build a ton of rules around it. I'm not going to be one that tells you, hey, on Saturday, here's what you need to do. Do this. Don't do this. But I will tell you more than anything is you need healing. We all do. And the way that we get that is we focus on what God has done in it. We need to remember what he has done for us. Take the focus off ourselves. And remember that the Sabbath was made for healing body and spirit. We need the spiritual rest from doing enough to matter. We need the spiritual rest for those of us who have a hard time saying no to others. We need the spiritual rest that comes from the anxiety of when will I get enough done that I reach this place where I'll get this rest and you won't get rest for your soul in what you accomplish. We are more than our work and our accomplishments and our obedience. You know, there's been an interesting term that's come up recently with this generation, the Sunday scaries. Do you know that one? It's, a, it's a, a, a phrase that they started saying recently, a, the younger generation, and I, I, I think there's some wisdom in it. The Sunday scaries. I don't know if you've ever had this. It's the idea that as Sunday evening comes and you get ready for a week where you have so much to accomplish and you start putting these burdens on yourself of making sure that you get enough done, of making sure that you meet everybody's expectations, of all of the things that you have to do as a mom, as a worker, as a father, and all of these people that put these expectations on you, you become anxious just waiting for the week to start. And it's called the Sunday scaries. You start dreading the start of a week because you realize all the things that are going to have to happen. And that is us putting the burden on ourselves of I have got to accomplish enough where I can find rest in who I am. And I'll tell you, you're not going to find it there. You're not going to find it. This is the time where what you do is you focus on what Christ says you are. You are more than the things that you will accomplish. You are more than the things you get done. You are more than the job that you have. You are more than the different roles that you play in this world to other people. You are who God says you are. And the best part about this is that what he invites you into is not your own rest. He invites you into his rest. Come into my rest. Come rest in what I say. I want to tell you, for those of us that are following the Lord, we need to be reminded of this. We need the constant healing that comes from this, of reminding ourselves, God has done this. This is the work he finished in us. It was whole and it was complete, and we can rest in it. And let me tell you this too. If you don't belong to Christ yet, I'm going to tell you, you're not going to find rest anywhere else. You can look and look and look. There are myths and there are legends and there are all kinds of things that aren't true. There is one place where you will find rest for your soul, and it's with Christ. I'm going to invite the praise team if you would come up, and we're going to close in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, it is your rest that we want. And it is based entirely on everything you do. And it has nothing to do with what we accomplish. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us your rest. Let us trust in you and the work that you've done. We know that after you created and you took that rest to say it's finished and it's right and it's the way it's supposed to be, is in a lot of ways the same way when Jesus on the cross said it's finished. And he rested. And now we can rest in that. The work for our souls to have rest, to know who we are, to know who we belong to, for healing of our souls, for us to be forgiven, for us to be redeemed, for us to be, belong to you, has all been done by you. Thank you. Thank God. Thank you. We don't have to rely on our own work for that. 
And so, Lord, as we lift up praises to you today, we ask that you will see our heart and that we will worship in spirit and in truth as a reminder of what you've done for us. And it's in the name of the resurrected Jesus that we pray. Amen.